So today we're going to talk about disclosure standards on takeover offers. I'm joined by Mark Bardell, who's a partner here, and my name's Antonia Kirkby, a professional support lawyer, and both of us focus on public M&A. So a number of recent rulings have focused on what has to be disclosed to shareholders on an M&A transaction. The most high profile of these is the recent decision in relation to the acquisition of HBOS by Lloyds, where shareholders claimed that Lloyds and its directors had failed to disclose relevant information in the shareholder circular. Arguments that there has been inadequate disclosure is a tactic which I think increasingly shareholders will turn to when they're not happy about an M&A transaction. So we thought it would be useful to look at what a company is required to disclose to shareholders and what the consequences are if they get it wrong. I'd like to introduce Mark now. Um, So, in terms of disclosure generally, I think we're seeing an increasing trend for greater disclosure by companies in all areas. I completely agree. So, I think there is an increased pressure for greater disclosure within that narrower scope of M&A transactions. But I'd go as far as to say that's simply a facet of a broader trend Uh, applicable to companies more generally, whether it's through their annual report and accounts, their regular disclosures to the market, and you could even make a broad comment about society nowadays wanting greater visibility about all aspects of our life. So absolutely, greater pressure for disclosure, particularly in the context of M&A transactions. So moving back to M&A, what is the starting point when you're sort of drafting a shareholder circular? Where should you start in terms of thinking about disclosure? So I think it's helpful to think of it in three realms. So you've got the disclosure requirements in the listing rules, and that's going to be relevant if your transaction is a class one acquisition or disposal. But also, if it's a circular to shareholders, then there are disclosure requirements under general chapter 13 of the listing rules. So the first of my three is remember the disclosure requirements under the listing rules, if applicable to the the transaction in question. Second area is to look at the disclosure requirements under the takeover code. Uh, Those will obviously apply in the context of a takeover offer or a scheme of arrangement. And don't forget whitewash transactions. So whenever there's an issue of shares to a shareholder or particular group of shareholders acting in concert that together would exceed 30%, uh, then you need to get the Rule 9, the waiver of the Rule 9 mandatory bid, which goes by the nickname of the whitewash transaction. So my second area is, again, remember those disclosure requirements under the takeover code. And the third area, which I think is easy to forget in amongst the the rush to get your circular done, is the general common law uh, duties, or or indeed being more specific, fiduciary duties as well, uh, which fall on the directors to make sure there is adequate disclosure and, and a sufficiency of information to enable shareholders to vote on the resolutions that are put to them. Uh, so that is the, the the most nebulous of the three topics because it is general common law, it is fiduciary duties, there are no specific checklists to apply. But in many ways, that's the most important in a practical sense for, for us to bear in mind. What I think is particularly important, and if listeners remember nothing else, It's the idea to get away from the process 
of producing your circular and disclosure, a process which by its definition involves lots of people, lots of checklists, lots of very detailed analysis to the very detailed disclosure rules, whether in the takeover code, the listing rules, uh, or indeed elsewhere. To get away from that process, which undoubtedly needs to be followed, but to take a step back, to look at things from the level of the board, and to test whether the executive team, um, checked by the non-executives, have described the reason for the transaction adequately and have described the risks associated with it adequately. And, and that step back to look at it from the level of the board is a very important part of the process, but it's very easy to overlook in the hustle and bustle and hurry to get your document out. So you mentioned the requirement to give shareholders sufficient information. Obviously, that feeds into the board stepping back and thinking about it. But have we got any other guidance on what that sufficient information might mean in a takeover or a shareholder circular? So one thing that is important to bear in mind, and I think is easy for for us all to overlook, is if the document that you're drafting is a scheme circular then there is a disclosure requirement under the Companies Act um, to give the explanatory statement uh, and to describe to shareholders what what the transaction is. And that's of particular importance because it's a criminal offence to to fail to give that adequate disclosure. So one part of my answer to your question is, if you're looking at a scheme, then please don't forget that and pay some particular attention to the fact that section 8972, and I've got it here in front of me, says that the explanatory statement must explain the effect of the compromise or arrangement, so i.e. the scheme itself, the the merger or acquisition as it may be, and it goes on to say, and in particular state, any material interest of the directors of the company, whether as directors or as members, or otherwise, and the effect on those interests of the compromise or arrangement insofar as it is different from the effect on the like interests of other persons. So, and and a a default is an offence, it goes on to say, as as I've reminded everyone. So what does that really mean in practice? Well, what it means in practice is two things. One, you've got to describe what the takeover is and what the point of it is. Um, And then more specifically, You've got to describe what incentives the management of the target are getting to proceed with the deal. And that's going to include their service contract, any equity incentives, any bonus payments and that kind of thing. So it's more than just Rule 16 of the Takeover Code that you need to think about. Um, You've got to think of the Companies Act disclosure. That's particularly relevant in take private transactions where you'd expect the incumbent management team to be incentivized by the sponsor purchaser to stay with the business and go forward. Therefore, any deal that has been cut has to be disclosed in its full glory in the shareholder circular. And that's going to have a timing impact as well because... Um, In all likelihood, the full detail of that package won't be negotiated at the time the merger is struck and would be something that would follow um, after the acquisition is implemented. And that's fine, but what you can't find yourself is in a position where the management team have negotiated in principle the terms of their package, um, but it's not disclosed in the circular. 
to end up in that position would risk the commission of an offence. So that, that's part of the answer, very specific in the context of schemes of arrangement. Um, the other part of the answer, I think, is most helpfully found in that recent judgment, uh, first instance judgment in, in the context of the, the Lloyd's H. Boss decision, sharp and blank. And there the court very helpfully described that fiduciary duty uh, so this is the equitable duty grounded on the principle that shareholders must be given sufficient information to make an informed decision about the proposal put to them at the meeting in question. And I think it's very important to note that the court took the view that the duty required it, the court, to look at the document afresh and subject it to scrutiny rather than give deference to the judgment of those preparing and advising on the document on materiality at the time it was prepared. So to me, that really emphasises this need to step back um, and consider whether the right information has been given to shareholders to enable them to take their vote. It's quite a uh, refreshingly simple, if I can put it in those terms, way of looking at the question. And have you got any other tips for boards or and their advisors when they're preparing shareholder documentation on an offer? Yeah, so my, my other tip is to bear in mind that, looked at from the perspective of the directors, they don't run the risk of personal liability for statements made in announcements or presentations to shareholders, to analysts and those sort of things. And, and that's important. It's only the shareholder circular that contains the responsibility statement. Um, and the responsibility statement, as, as our listeners will know, uh, really is, is, contains those key words that the document contains all the relevant information and does no, not omit anything that is material. And it's that kind of responsibility statement, whether it's driven by the listing rules or the takeover code, it's that statement that drives the potential tortious liability, so the duty from directors to shareholders for negligent misstatement. Uh, so focus on what's in the circular, the offer document scheme circular, um, and make sure that the disclosure there is complete, adequate and sufficient. Uh, that is the key part of the transaction. And it's very easy to focus on the announcement of the deal, to focus on the early stages and to lose sight of the fact that in disclosure terms, it is the circular that matters. Thank you, Mark. And one question I quite often come across and, and get asked about is the question of material contracts and what has to be disclosed and what is a material contract. What should companies be thinking about in that context? Well, you raise a very interesting question because I think we've all been involved in transactions where there's pressure from one side or another to not disclose a particular document. And you can see that arising in lots of different contexts. In uh, the context of a class one circular under the listing rules, uh, the, the, the SPA itself, the, the, the sale and purchase agreement, that would get summarised as a material contract. And another example uh, of that issue, I, I think, was helpfully set out 
uh, by the ruling of the Takeover Appeal Board back in 2016 in the context of the merger of Ladbrokes, the gaming company, with Gala Coral. Uh, and in, in very abbreviated form, what was that about? Well, there was a particular shareholder, uh, Mr. Dermot Desmond, uh, who was a, approximately a 3% shareholder in Ladbrokes and who was opposed to that merger. And he took issue with the disclosure of agreements with Playtech. Playtech is a service provider to Labrooks and Gala Coral. And in short, an amendment was made to those agreements. It was a marketing service agreement and a software license agreement with Playtech. Uh, so that the payment under those ongoing arrangements um, would take a different shape after the merger. The commercial reason for that change was so that Playtech was rewarded on a performance uh, basis uh, rather than just getting a, a particular fillip on, on the back of the merger going through. And the, those services were vital to the online aspect of the, the business of the enlarged group going forward. Anyway, the, the point that I, I think is of particular interest in that decision uh, is that there was an argument as to whether the original agreements with Playtech and indeed the amended agreements with Playtech um, ought to have been disclosed. And Mr Dem Desmond was pushing for full disclosure and sight of the amendment agreements and the original agreements. In the course of the transaction, uh, the, the parties voluntarily disclosed the amendment agreement um, but maintained their position throughout the appeal that they were not material contracts that ought to be disclosed and, and put on the website under the requirements of the takeover code. Uh, and that position was upheld by the executive and the hearings committee. But when it got to the takeover appeal board, the Takeover of Appeal Board, they're comprising of Lord Collins, Sir John Mummery and, and Mr Ed Walker-Arnott, um, took a, a very clear, again a helpfully simple view of what was required there. And it all turned on whether those agreements with Playtech were in the ordinary course of business uh, for Labrooks and Gala Coral. And what uh, Lord Collins and the rest of the board say in that uh, decision, which is available on, on the website of the Takeover Repeal Board, is, uh, is quite helpful because they say, the expression ordinary course of business is used in many contexts, ranging from common contractual provisions to many statutory examples. They are ordinary words of the English language which must be interpreted in the light of the meaning which business people would give them in the particular context in which they are used. Here the context is the disclosure of information about contracts which fall outside the normal activity of the company. And they go on to say, an amending agreement which involves the payment of an aggregate of £75 million pounds, um, and conditional only on implementation of the merger is, in the view of the board, and having regard to the size of Ladbrook's business, its assets and its profitability, plainly outside the normal activity of the company and hence outside the ordinary course of its business. So if we just stop there, 
you can imagine uh, the, the pressure that exists in a transaction. No one wants to reveal the original Playtech documents or the amendments and get into what anybody would regard as commercially sensitive information about those arrangements. One can imagine the pressure not to disclose the terms of that document. And one can imagine clever arguments about whether the agreements fall within the relevant disclosure period, um, what in connection with the offer means, what ordinary course means, and arguments along the lines of surely online gaming means software license support and that must be ordinary course. And, and one can see the pressure in the arguments building in that regard. But stepping back, seen from the position of the Takeover Appeal Board, um, they come to the very simple, and I would suggest right, conclusion that a contract of that nature was plainly outside the normal activity of the company. And that goes back to the point that we were talking about earlier, that need to step back, to look at the question from the perspective of the executive team, from the perspective of describing the transaction to shareholders and giving them the information they need in order to vote on the transaction. Thanks, Mark. Um, and you've mentioned uh, in the context of schemes a criminal offence uh, in the Companies Act, but what more broadly are the consequences for directors if they get the disclosure standard wrong? Uh, so... Again, going back to where we started, you've got to think of the three regimes and what's the consequences of, of getting it wrong under those regimes. Uh, and so if we start with the, the common law and the fiduciary um, duties as well, negligent misstatement, if a director is found to owe a duty to shareholders, and, and as we discussed in the context of a circular and a responsibility statement, there is a duty owed to shareholders, the directors can be personally liable if they are found to have negligently misstated information in the circular. So that is money out of the director's pockets directly to shareholders for getting it wrong. And, and that is very important to bear in mind. In the context of a fiduciary duty, then if insufficient information is given, the court is likely to, to reconvene or to require the company to reconvene the shareholder meeting to have shareholders vote again. That again is a very important point and, and that is the area which would also cause most of, it, most of an issue under the takeover code disclosure requirements, the scheme uh, statutory requirements and the listing rules. So it's the risk of derailing the transaction, of having to call a second meeting to look again at the merits of the transaction. And, and that was your first question really, was around shareholder pressure to try and derail transactions in those areas. And then lastly, there is on occasion the risk of a criminal offence. I mentioned the, uh, the, the statutory requirement for disclosure in the context of a scheme. Um, and that there are others that the directors must take into account as well. So just to wrap up and perhaps most challengingly, have you got any tips you can give for all parties to an M&A transaction and their advisors when deciding whether something should be disclosed? So I would say two things. Uh, to boil all this down to practical uh, advice, the first is... It's important to go through the process, to look at the detail of the rules, to go through verification, yes, 
but it is equally important to step back and ask the fundamental question, is there anything missing from this circular? Have I given the shareholders a full picture of the deal and given them everything uh, they need to know in order to vote on the transaction? So step back and ask what is missing. That's my first tip. Uh, my second and last tip is to ask the question three times. And what do I mean by that? Uh, when advisors, whether inside or outside the company, are looking at the transaction, looking at the chairman's letter, is there anything in there that's of, of key importance? Well, by definition, everything that's in there is considered to be really important. And ask yourself the question for each statement of fact three times. Have we given the full disclosure? Record the answer to that question. Ask it for a second time during the course of your verification and checking. And again, ask it for a third time around about the time of the final board meeting signing off on the document. So demonstrate that you've asked the question three times. That is the full process. Write the answers and write that you have asked at those three different times. And, and that then leaves your board in the best possible position it can be in to demonstrate that it's acted on the basis of advice, that advice is well-founded, has been thoughtfully given after a, a long and proper process, um, very difficult to, for shareholders to succeed in an action for negligent misstatement against that backdrop. So hopefully uh, a bit of good news at the end of all this. Thanks very much, Mark. I think that is a really helpful insight for people working on these circulars and documentation. Um, and that is the end of today's episode. Thanks very much. Thanks, Antonia.